Welcome to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. This is the co-host, uh, our Paul Singh. And uh, this season, uh, we've been talking about global business and its relationship to entrepreneurship. Uh, so today we have a very special guest, uh, Mr. Naeem Zafar. Uh, he's been teaching at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, in entrepreneurship. And he's a Dean's Teaching Fellow, Lecturer, and Industry Fellow at the Center of Entrepreneurship and Technology. He's also the Professor of the Practice at Brown University. And he teaches courses in entrepreneurship, technology, strategy, innovation, and new venture financing at Brown, Berkeley, and Northeastern University. Um, he's also a serial entrepreneur. Uh, currently, he's the co-founder and CEO of Telesense, a company that is creating solution in the industrial IoT space. And he has co-founded various companies, including Bitzer Mobile, an enterprise security and mobility uh, company that was acquired by Oracle. And uh, Naeem has authored uh, five books on entrepreneurship on topics ranging from conducting market research to seeking the right funding to successful ways to start a business. So with that, let me welcome uh, Naeem Zephyr. Well, good to be here. Uh, so Naeem, tell us a little bit about, you know, you are now the CEO of a startup. So, uh, you know, you've done startups before and you're back again in the saddle. How does it feel and what does, what does it mean to be a startup and entrepreneur again? Well, startup entrepreneur, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. So some people, this is kind of way to live. You know, entrepreneurs are different beasts. They're not normal like everybody else. They're a bit of a misfit of society. They don't know what else to do. So many of us keep coming back and doing what we know best, which is identifying an unmet need, figuring out what people should need, want need, confirm our assumptions and put together the resources, people, money to come up with a solution. This is a very interesting process. You are always, think of that yourself as a Sherlock Holmes. You're looking for clues what people should want. You're trying to solve a mystery and trying to put together a product people can love. So there's a complexity. Every day is different. No two days are alike in my life. And so, you know, I think of that myself as a detective who's looking for solutions. That's a good way to live. So doesn't that get old after a while? Does Sherlock Holmes got bored after a while? No, it doesn't get bored after a while because he's looking for new clues and new issues. Now, you know, I, I've done, uh, this is my seventh startup. Almost uh, every one of them are solving a different problem. So you're building on your skills as a person who can put together teams and go after problems, it's not old. So it's kind of interesting that there are a lot of entrepreneurs I meet who, you know, do one company in security, then second and a third and the fourth, and everything is in the same space. Uh, but like me, you seem to have branched off from every company being in a different uh, space. So why is that? Well, partly because, uh, you know, we are curious people and uh, we want to do something different. If you're a curious person, you're a lifelong learner, you're always trying to learn about other things. So every industry gives you an opportunity to learn something different. My first companies were in the chip design engineering space. Then we went into biometrics 
and fingerprint detection space. So the little device touch ID on your iPhone, we invented that technology. Apple bought that company later with two hands in between. So then now I'm in agriculture space. And fundamental issues haven't changed, which is using electronics, using software, using sensors, can you detect problems and solve them and predict them? So to me, say what you ask is, it's a curiosity, it's a personal journey. Why be boring? So agriculture startup coming out of Silicon Valley, what, how, what gives? How come? Well, let me ask you this question. Was Airbnb started by hotel people? Was Uber started by a taxi company? No. So you have to most, if you look at the innovation in the last 50 years, it has almost always come from somebody who was not that from industry. Look at Tesla and Detroit. So this is not surprising that it'll be somebody from outside the traditional industry who's going to look at the problem with a different angle and may come up with solutions which are non-traditional. Mm. So I believe it. We're doing it. We have plenty of examples around it. So I remember uh, when you started this company, it was supposed to be an IoT company, but I'm hearing now something totally different. So uh, is it the, the market change or did you learn something new from the market? What, what's happening? No, it is IoT company even today. So let's uh, put some light on this. IoT is a horizontal technology. It can apply to many, many use cases, just like database is a horizontal technology, but it's used in healthcare, it's used in transportation. Same thing here, IoT is a horizontal underlying technology of sensors, software, wireless data collection, cloud, and doing something with that information intuitively, software. So we are an IoT company, we are choosing to focus on agriculture as the vertical. And inside that vertical, we are choosing to focus on a very specific niche called post-harvest grain storage and transport. Every year, $14 billion of grain is wasted and spoiled in the world. It's a worldwide problem. The reason I picked this one, partly was serendipity, we ran into the right people at the right time. But if you can impact and save this grain, you're helping people in all over the world. In India, in Pakistan, in Brazil, in America, because if you can put a few more pennies in a farmer's pocket, a lot of people will be happy. So you're saying that uh, startups which have some kind of a purpose uh, really tend to go further, or is that not the case? I'm not saying that. would like that to be true. What I'm saying is that the founders, if they find more meaning in their work, will go deeper, work harder, will give more purpose to their efforts. Now, if you're just laying bricks on top of each other for three months in a hot, sunny summer, you may get tired and bored with this. But if you knew you were actually building, this is 1644, and you're building the Taj Mahal, you may have a different motivation. So we're all laying the bricks. The question is, what are we building? Is it edifice, or is it just an exercise in construction, deconstruction? So I think it gives more purpose to founders, gives them more meaning to them and the people they can attract. But I wish what you said was true, but I don't have any evidence to say that with purpose go further. Mm -hmm. What goes further is people who have passion behind making it so. So what you're saying is that it is the entrepreneur passion. Yeah. And then obviously if you have a purpose, you can probably attract the like-minded people a little bit better. 
That's exactly right. Because if you're an entrepreneur, typically you don't have, but what you don't have is money. Of course, there are exceptions. So what is your currency? Your currency is your vision. It's your stock options. It's a purpose. And you'll be surprised how many people, especially young people, you can attract using that currency. And that is how I have built companies. My current company, for four years, we worked on a shoestring budget. We had nine or 10 people in the company. Only three of them were getting paid. And it was, I was not one of them. And those three were even sub-market salary. Other mm-hmm. people were there because they saw a purpose, a meaning, and in culture they can relate to. So entrepreneur has to do that. It has to use those skills to attract talent. Otherwise, you will be out of the game. So you, you mentioned, uh, you know, you didn't start with that and it just, you know, you kind of ran into this solution or problem and then you finally started looking uh, for the solution. So is it common that most startups uh, tend to just find their way and how, do, how should the entrepreneurs really, you know, look at that scenario or do they always start with the right problem? No, you start with one problem. And the thing that I tell everybody is you have an idea who needs this? Why do they need it? What alternatives do they have? At what price point they will buy it? Who makes the decision? When is the decision made? These are all your assumptions. You don't know. So you'll go talk to people, try to validate those assumptions. And if you're finding out what you're hearing doesn't hold water or doesn't look as attractive as you thought, so you change. You find some other use cases. So in case of Telesense, we started with IoT in uh, home automation. We found out lots of big companies, Apple, Google, were working on it, and the price point were very aggressive. So we moved to another industry. We looked at uh, energy management in buildings. Turns out a lot of big companies like Honeywell, Johnson Control were working at it. We switched to uh, seafood monitoring because of a new law, which was coming in Food Safety Modernization Act. And we built a product. We had customers. A lot of inexpensive solutions were coming from China. And it was hard for us to differentiate and justify the price point. So we looked for some place when the competitive landscape was more comfortable. And simply by talking to people, doing research, we understood that farmers stored grain is a problem. And there's no good solutions out there. So idea is you have to be constantly be curious, be pivoting, be looks, talking to people till you can hit something it's called a product market fit. So you're saying that uh, what really led you to that is constantly, you know, like being the Sherlock Holmes, as you yeah. said, and being the lookout. In, on the lookout for solutions, yeah. uh, I mean, problems that you can solve with your solution. Uh, so that's, that's kind of interesting. So you started with one. Till you can find one company, one customer who has a hair on fire somebody who happens to be looking for it and the consequences will be significant if they cannot solve it. Mm-hmm. Every startup company has to find, especially in B2B space, B2C is different. You have to find somebody with a hair on fire because that's the person who's willing to overlook, you're too small, you're not proven because the hair is on fire. They say, if you can solve it, I'll buy it. So in my, all my companies I've done, I always had to look for the guy with the hair on fire. Mm. Look for the guy with the hair on fire. That's an interesting uh, thing we'll remember. Um, so uh, we got about a minute or so. So I just wanted to, you know, maybe uh, build on that myth that all entrepreneurs are risk takers. 
Are they? No, actually it's the opposite. See, people confuse risk-taking from being comfortable living in the fog. Normal people are afraid to walk into the fog or drive into a foggy situation. They don't know what's there. So they say, I'll wait till it clears up or they ask a bunch of questions. Entrepreneur has a certain personality profile. They get comfortable walking into it because they know, they have confidence. They'll figure something out once they get in there. Other people think of that as being taking risk. We think of that as being a curiosity, a journey. We'll figure it out. We are confident we'll, something will work out. That is the essence of an entrepreneur. Okay, very well said. So it's the fog and trying to figure out how your way around the fog. So we'll be back um, in the next section. And um... Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. For the past two years, Global Business with Mahesh Joshi has been a top-rated program on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, with its popularity growing, he has converted many of the concepts discussed on the show into an easy-to-read book from Oxford University Press, one of the top publishers in the world. Place your order for the book, Global Business, at mkjgb.com. Act now, and as a special offer, you'll receive a signed copy of the book by the author, Mahesh Joshi. Order today at mkjgb.com. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Uh, with uh, Mr. Naeem Zafar. Uh, we were talking in 
the last uh, section about entrepreneurship and his experience as an entrepreneur and some of the ideas that he talked about, like how and entrepreneurs are looking at unmet needs and they're like Sherlock Holmes trying to always look for problems to solve. And that is what he has done in his career. And um, so this time in this section, we're going to switch to understanding since he's been a professor of entrepreneurship for a number of years, both at UC Berkeley, uh, Brown University, as well as in Northeastern University. So we're going to ask him more about that. Uh, so, Naeem, uh, do you think entrepreneurship can be taught or are entrepreneurs born? Well, let me ask you this question. Can music be taught or some people are born musicians? answer is some people are born musicians. They don't need a lot of training. Some people have absolutely no talent for music, like me. And some people, you know, they have something gene in them and with a little bit of training, some lessons, they can be pretty good. Entrepreneurship is no different. So some people have natural skills, the resilience, the determination, the curiosity, the be comfortable living in the fog, be okay with ambiguity, uh, skills to get other people to do things for you. So they have that natural ability. They spot problems and they see solutions when other people complain. Now with a little bit of education, that how do you translate that into a business model? How do you figure out a go-to-market strategy? How do you build a financial model to estimate your needs? Then they could be pretty good entrepreneurs. So short answer is it can be taught if you have the right genetic structure. So what is the right genetic structure? I just mentioned it. It's the curiosity, it's the ability to get people to do things, it's the naturally being comfortable in the fog. It, it, this is a, a, a kind of a profile is pretty obvious. Look at all the great entrepreneurs we have seen lately. Elon Musk from Steve Jobs. Are these normal people? No, they're strange. So all entrepreneurs tend to be strange in the way that I just described. So, uh, you know, suddenly we see a burst of entrepreneurship, the number of companies being started and started by many young people, not just from the U.S., but from everywhere else. And you've been teaching entrepreneurship. So what is it that, uh, what kind of things that you've taught that have worked and how have you been teaching entrepreneurship? What's the model? So before I answer your question, let's uh, answer a different question, which is why suddenly there's a burst. And the answer is there are two things which have changed. One, the cost of starting a business has gone down 10x to 100x. It wasn't that long ago, like before in 90s, late 90s, to start a company in technology, the first $3 million went towards buying servers and software. Mm -hmm. Now you can rent on the cloud for $100 a month and still get started. Yeah, I remember in my last company, we spent about $5 million on yeah. hardware investment. And today I don't need most of it. Exactly. And then similarly, there are all kind of platforms for, either for data science, artificial intelligence, user interface. So this is how quickly you can put together a company. So this has given a huge boost. The second thing is people have to, you have to tell the stories. You have to know who you celebrate and people follow that. If you look at the last 50 years, who did we, last 100 years, who did we celebrate 100 years ago? It was the industrialist. 
Mm-hmm. Who did we celebrate in the last 30, 40 years? Celebrity or the sports person. So this is who, who's on the magazine covers. That's what people want to emulate. And the last 10, 20 years, it has been the entrepreneur. At least in Silicon Valley and in the U.S., entrepreneurs are getting. So all people who would not have thought of that as an option, now they do. So entrepreneurs are the new, new heroes. These new heroes. And that's what's given this big boost. Now, going back to a question you asked, how do I, how do I teach entrepreneurship? So my point of entrepreneurship is you have to have three or four things have to come together. Just like you cannot teach swimming by PowerPoint. You can teach me hundred slides of swimming techniques and angles. You still have to get in the water and splash around. Entrepreneurship is the same way. You start experientially. So we use case studies, Socratic method with other people have done it. We use lectures. We have guest speakers when people can hear what other people do. And when you realize this guy who looks like me, as goofy as me, did this, why can't I do it? And then ultimately it's the experiential learning when you have to go out and try to build something with your own hand. And we teach them in the class how to. The class final exam is not a paper. It's a presentation to actual venture capitalists and investors. And they will roast you and grill you just like they do anybody else walking through their doors. So what you're saying is that you will take them through this whole exercise of how do you really research your idea? How do you figure out what the unmet need is and before you build any solution? So that's kind of the first step they learn exactly. how to do that research. So you really will break it down into three pieces, maybe even two pieces. First section is, will it float or will it sink? Which means you have to figure out who needs this? Who needs it more? Whatever the problem. Who has a problem? How big is the problem? How many people have this problem? Market size. What alternatives these people have? That's your competitive landscape. So once you have convinced yourself this will float, then the second part of the, this journey or the class is, how do I launch it? So then you have to figure out how, where do you manufacture it? What the solution looks like? What's the business model? What's your go-to-market strategy? What partnerships will help you? How much money do you need to raise to be able to get started? So that's the second half. So yeah, we walk them through this whole process of figuring this out. So my books, for example, help people do exactly that. Mm -hmm. The first book, The Seven Steps, lays out the seven steps. The book on market research shows you exactly how you can validate your idea without spending a lot of money. The book about get funding is all about how do you raise money given what you have learned. Yeah, I've used uh, those books in my classes as well when we teach entrepreneurship. So it's been, uh, uh, you know, it's been enlightening that it doesn't, it is very, very practical advice in terms of what to do and what not to do. Uh, so for entrepreneurs that are looking uh, for help, I think these are really great resources. Um, so uh, coming back to, so you said you, so do people have to come up with a real idea and actually go on and execute it as if they are really running a company and do many of them actually end up starting a company after the class? Yes. And I want them to have that mindset as if they're starting a real company. And several times, almost once or twice every semester, somebody moves forward with that company. Several companies have come out of my class in Berkeley. Some of them gone on to be $200 million in revenue and more. We're going to file an IPO. But several companies have gone on to be tens of millions of dollars of revenue. So that's exactly right. This is, you want to give them enough 
feel how to take everything you have learned and able to put into a practical, real company. And even the one who don't right away start, 60% of them will, will be part of a startup within five years because I keep in touch with them and they come back and tell me that. So you're saying even if you don't start a company right after the class, you find that a lot of people come back after having worked for a few years, yeah. then they come and start a company. But I think that is correct. But let me just make an additional point. The class is not about starting a company. An entrepreneur definition is not the one who starts a company. That would be too limiting. What I'm teaching people is entrepreneurial mindset. Entrepreneurial mindset could be used even if you work for a really boring large company or even government. Because it's a way of looking at the problem and thinking of creative way to address the need and be able to see a crack when others don't see and able to exploit it to some benefit. So that entrepreneurial mindset is what the real learning is. So it's interesting. So, so you're saying that basically it's not about the entrepreneurship or starting a company, but it is what is needed today is for people to develop that entrepreneurial mindset where they can see a problem, they can spot a problem, then they know how to analyze it and actually come up with a solution. And so is this a skill you think should be taught in every school? Yes, very much so. And I believe it. And some schools have taken that seriously. So I know Brown University, uh, they are trying to embed the entrepreneurship in all classes. I mean, that, that's what the provost wants. Uh, this also another state like Arizona State University is very prevalent. It's not a subject you take. This is something which applies to all classes. Think of some other thing which applies to all things, ethics. Uh, think about how to do market research, how to articulate your thoughts, whether in writing or in public speaking. So there are some skills that are pretty broad and entrepreneurship is one of those skills. So, um, you know, we are... We're, um Looking at, uh, you know, you probably teach entrepreneur from every part of the world. And I know you've taught classes, you know, in various countries as well. So what's, what is, what are the differences between the entrepreneurs coming from the U.S. or even outside the Silicon Valley versus other countries that you've been working with? So there are two main differences to be highlighted here. The one main difference is that Culture dictates your behavior. For many other countries, individualism is frowned upon. So, for example, in certain cultures like in Japan or Singapore, trying to be different is looked upon strangely. Everybody wants to be similar as compared to Israel or the United States or Silicon Valley. Individualism is celebrated, which helps people being different, being entrepreneurs. The second big difference I see between people from Silicon Valley and outside People from other countries don't think big. They think local. They think small. Somehow in Silicon Valley, the mindset is it's our job to fix the whole world. They think global. They think anything is possible. They think audacious. And I think that is very critical difference because that audacity helps you accomplish more than you think. It gives you the fuel necessary. Okay. So I think we're going to pick up that after the break. Uh, so we'll be back. Uh, after the break. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. For the past two years, Global Business with Mahesh Joshi has been a top-rated program on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, with its popularity growing, he has converted many of the concepts discussed on the show into an easy-to-read book from Oxford University Press, one of the top publishers in the world. Place your order for the book, Global Business, at mkjgb.com. Act now, and as a special offer, you'll receive a signed copy of the book by the author, Mahesh Joshi. Order today at mkjgb.com. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. We are back uh, with Mr. Naeem Zafar, and we were before the break. Uh, we were talking about the difference in entrepreneurial mindset of people from Silicon Valley versus outside, and um, how those differences exist and how they affect different companies. And uh, Naeem, you mentioned culture dictates everything, and then second thing you mentioned was uh, people outside or people in Silicon Valley, I should say, always tend to think big, something that doesn't quite come naturally in uh, the entrepreneurs coming from other side of the world. Um, so can you elaborate a little bit more about the culture part of it and how can the entrepreneurs who are coming from outside the U.S., how can they really change that aspect? So, you know, culture, my favorite definition of culture is how things get done when there is no written rule for it, how people behave. This is very deep and formed over decades, if not longer. And you see the same person living in India or some other place and you ask them questions like, hey, what are you working on? That's a strange question for most people. They will not answer it. They will say something vague like, oh, you know, I'm in IT or something very high level or just be suspicious of like, why are you asking or who sent you? This is a normal question in Silicon Valley. You ask people what they're working on and they'll be specifically like I have been, we are using IOT technology and artificial intelligence to improve 
quality of stored grain and prevent spoilage? That's a pretty detailed answer. Mm -hmm. So this kind of a clarity brings collaboration. This kind of a articulation brings advisors, collaborators, investors, because you have given them enough so they can interact with you. In other places, people are suspicious. This is culture. But you put the same guy in Silicon Valley, taken from India, and a year later, he'll be behaving like the locals. No, but isn't it true that, uh, you know, people are in maybe, say, India or any other country, for that matter, are always afraid that, hey, you know, if I share my ideas, people might walk away with my ideas. Exactly. So people in Silicon Valley, when you lived here for some time and you realize everybody's sharing the idea and I'm not running away and walking away with it and no other people are not. Why? Because ideas are dime a dozen. It's the execution, which is the hard part. Execution requires some relentless focus and sacrifice. So if somebody just can walk away and have equally excited and execute on your idea, well, we should hire that person. Because, you know, so it doesn't happen this way. In other words, that, that fear is ill-founded and they say, you know, this is a amateur hour when people think that way. It, it, nobody steals idea like that. It takes a lot of effort to execute on any idea. Well, it is kind of interesting. I was talking to uh, another uh, one of our guests, uh, Sasha Johnson, in uh, another episode, and she was mentioning that as an investor, the first thing that was interesting for them going into Eastern European countries is they all wanted me to sign an NDA and I had to tell them that we don't sign NDAs. Right, exactly right. The non-disclosure agreements are not signed by any investors and actually probably by most people in Valley. That's right. Um, so the other uh, part that you brought up is people think big here. Why is that and how can the other entrepreneurs start to think, start thinking big? I think it's a mindset issue. You know, here people think companies starting and addressing the whole world as their target market. And they're investors who will co collaborate that thinking and encourage you. There are advisors who have done it before. They'll say, yeah, sure, this could be done. So suddenly, being here, you begin to believe yourself that this could be done worldwide. This could have an impact. Living in Argentina and thinking about what could be done, you thinking about your local city. You think, what can I do in Rosario or Buenos Aires? So this is all mindset issue, which people you hang out with will change your mindset. So when mom always told you, that your future depends on who you hang out with as friends in high school, that's true. That's the mindset. That's it. So you are saying if I take, so one thing every entrepreneur should do is first move to Silicon Valley if they want to change their mindset? No, they need to learn and study what is the mindset. That mindset can be and has been changed in many places. The new entrepreneurs in China and India, which are really shaking things up, because they have seen the movie, they know how it can end. They, they've been here, they have expanded their thought process. So this is going global. The phenomena is going global. What I'm talking about historically, it was limited, but I think people are getting the message. And you're seeing a very interesting innovation coming out of here. After Silicon Valley, the other place which had the culture and had the impact was, was Israel. They did a great job of inventing so many things and being successful and we're seeing that happening in India, we're seeing that happening in China and several other places, finally. So you mentioned uh, about uh, ideas are dime a dozen and it's the execution that matters. And 
So is this something that can be taught to people as to how to execute these things? And if so, what can, what do they learn in, you know, when you teach them entrepreneurship? They learn several things. They learn about how to think big and how to think through the problem, the steps necessary to create a solution, a story, which is fundable. Remember that, and the, well, okay, we'll come back to it. And third thing that they learn is how to articulate the thought process in a way that people will hear. Most people don't know how to put together five sentences to get their thought out. So a lot of that effort is on that, is teaching people the method of able to articulate a story. Remember, you're selling a story. It's about art of storytelling. How do you construct a story that there was a need, I, I saw a need, I found a way to validate it, I found three people who confirmed it and they're willing to buy it if this problem could be solved this way. And that's why I have traction, I have resources, I have clarity. What I need from you, Mr. Investor, is these money so I can do the following. That's a story you have to construct. And people call it business plan. I call it the story, the storytelling. If you can construct the story, then money comes to you. And most people, most entrepreneurs don't think of it this way. They have an idea. They haven't thought through it between the couch and the TV. They try to approach some investors half-caught. They don't get the traction. Then they blame everybody but themselves. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is that um, many people who want to be entrepreneurs and have an idea, uh, idea doesn't really mean much unless and until you take the extra effort of validating your ideas, trying to figure out who is going to buy it. And then, as you said, let's create a story around what is it, who is it for, who is going to benefit, what is my competitive advantage, and why and how I can big, make it into a really bigger company. Yeah, that's the story you have to construct. Now, um, I know there are many companies that are also started without having raised the money. And so are you saying that raising money is kind of the success uh, factor of a startup or are there other things uh, also that you've seen startups do well without raising money? No, raising money is not a essential to startup. Raising money is necessary to scale the company. So it goes through three process. process step number one, first stage is to validate if the idea makes any sense. That's called will it float or will it sink? Now, that could be done without spending a lot of money. It's mostly time. If you can afford to have your own savings or your friends and family can help you or you can do it while you still have your day job, you can do that. Don't need a lot of money. Second thing is to figure out, okay, it will float. How do I construct a business out of it? Now, this will require, again, some research, talking to people, putting resources together, a financial model perhaps. You can do all that without spending a lot of money. Now, if you may have to hire one or two people, then you may need a little bit of money. When you have done that part and you have found some traction from potential users and customers, now you need to build it and figure out how to sell it. That, again, will determine what scale are you trying to do. You may not need a lot of money because you may test it locally with five or 10 people or companies you, you know. At some point, when you want to, now scale it, sell it to 1,000 companies, you're going to need resources. If you have your own means, you don't need to raise money. Not every company raises money right away. 
But most entrepreneurs don't have the means, and this is now you have to build the story, get the re- money. My current company, Telesense, for four years, we ran one shoestring with very little money. I have put myself into the company and a couple of my friends and family. It took me four years to build the story, and now we're able to raise $6.5 million from a consortium of top-notch investors. So you mean uh, four and a half years in and you're just barely getting started? You mean the startups take that long? Not typically. This was a little longer than expected. Uh, but IoT is a, one of those fields when people are still skeptical and they want to find compelling use cases. Normally, it can take anywhere from one to two years to go through this phase. This took a little longer here partly because I was writing those books and teaching in the universities, so I was driving a little slower than normal. Well, I mean, I think I, what do you think is a typical time it takes for a startup after getting the first initial uh, getting out of the gate, which say one to two years, and how long does it take after that for startups to gain traction? So again, uh, you know, Ranges all over the map. For a B two C company selling to consumers, it can happen very quickly because you find the right fit, and within three four years, you can have a very nice company with growth if you're hitting the right stride. For B two B companies, it takes a little longer. It's typical four to six years it takes to build a company. So you know, of course, there are exceptions on both sides, but this is typical from what I've seen. Okay, so I think uh, we are going to. Um take a break here but uh before we take a break we're gonna uh you know talk about the, in the last section we're going to focus on uh the product market fit that you talked about and some of the ideas uh on the entrepreneurship and the entrepreneurs from outside uh, of the u.s as well okay what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. 
For the past two years, Global Business with Mahesh Joshi has been a top-rated program on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, with its popularity growing, he has converted many of the concepts discussed on the show into an easy-to-read book from Oxford University Press, one of the top publishers in the world. Place your order for the book, Global Business, at mkjgb.com. Act now, and as a special offer, you'll receive a signed copy of the book by the author, Mahesh Joshi. Order today at mkjgb.com. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. We're back uh, with Mr. Naeem Zafar. Uh, we've been talking about uh, his experience as an entrepreneur and having been a professor at uh, Berkeley and Brown and Northeastern. He's been teaching entrepreneurship for a number of years. So his experience of teaching entrepreneurship, and yes, I think we've established that uh, entrepreneurs are not necessarily born. They can be taught. Uh, and... Um, since uh, Naeem, you are building a business out of Silicon Valley where I would imagine most of your customers are not just outside Silicon Valley, but are outside the U.S. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit more about your experience of uh, building a global business that you are trying to build right now and what are the challenges you face. Yeah, I think... Uh you, it is tricky to build global businesses. So you have to be cognizant of several things because each geography acts differently. So you have to figure out your channel strategy and your go-to-market strategy for each country. So we are focused, for example, on four regions, uh, North America, Latin America, Australia, and Eastern Europe. Why? Because for grain market, these are the areas where a lot of grain in the world is produced uh, and shipped to other countries. Uh, so we have chosen not to focus on India and China initially because go-to-market in those countries is much more complicated. You need a local partner and you need to set up a separate legal entities to do business there. So you have to think about that. Uh, my use strategy is once you perfect the product close to home, because you need a very fast iteration to get the product right and iterate. So you want to do that as close to home as possible. Once you feel that you have gotten the product to a stable enough space, then you need to figure out what the strategy is. So in our case, we'll be looking at a direct sales model for U.S., but we're looking for representatives in Latin America, in Eastern Europe, people who speak the language, know the local people. Hiring somebody like that for on a, even a contract basis will help you learn the marketplace and the players and get meetings and introductions. So you have to have a deep understanding of each market before you can attack it. So I say iterative process of picking, perfecting the product close to home, understand each region where you want to target and why, 
find a local person there to guide you, then figure out what distribution scheme will make sense to product to that region. So are you, uh, you know, you mentioned something that you were not focusing on India and China because they require you to create uh, separate entities. Uh, and is that not the case in Latin America, Australia, and Eastern Europe? It's not necessarily the case. You can directly be outside selling in here. In China, for example, you need to set up a joint venture. There are other complexities. Some places want 51% ownership of the local people. So each region has its own complexity. So you have to educate yourself. So I was in Australia recently. I met with an attorney understanding the proper way of getting into the market. And it's easier than I thought. Uh, you know, I'm hiring people in Ukraine to figure out the local market there. Yeah, so this is you, uh, you know, internet has made things much easier. You can sell globally, but the regional nuances and differences and based on your product, your distribution and channel strategy will differ. So you're saying that, uh, yes, with the, with the benefit of internet, we can find resources a lot more easily, but still the nuances of doing business in a particular country and what works is still something one has to be cognizant of. Very much so, especially in Japan, for example. You know, people think you can just fly in, have a couple of meetings, and able to sell it in Japanese market. It does not work that way. You need to have a relationship with local distribution company, company that trust, company has been around for a long time, because they, it's very critical to understand the Japanese dynamics of the marketplace. So I've done a lot of business in Japan, and we have some tough lessons we have learned over the years. Yeah, I, I know. Um, we tried to do business in Japan uh, in a few of my companies before, and yes, it is a, a pretty complex and evolved process yeah. uh, to winning the confidence of the local people there. Um, so, so when you you talked about you are to build your channels of distribution, so you know, in the world of internet, can you not sell everything direct today? Some things you can. You know, take an example like Dropbox. Now, this is a sale which is a zero-touch sale. You don't talk or shake hands with anybody and you can sell. You can sell that globally right now. You don't need mm -hmm. to have a channel strategy. So it depends on the product you have. If the product is no touch and you can localize in the local language, then you can have the global approach. But you're selling hardware or machinery or something which is physical, then you have to think through the things I talked about. How will you service it? Who, how, where will customer will return it? who will go for customer support? What about local language support? So depending on what your product is, there are different complexities and each entrepreneur has to think through those things. Um, so you also mentioned that the go-to-market strategy for each market is also different. And um, I thought in the age of internet, you could just launch your product in one market and basically the message automatically spreads through the internet. So where does the go-to-market strategy differentiation come in? Yeah, it's a large extent that is true. It's much more true than ever before. But then again, uh, for example, what, what social media you use to get to your customer? In the U.S., you may think about Facebook. But in Brazil, it's a different product. Orkut will be a much more common way where people connect. So even having a different, each country will have their own method what people listen to, what we trust. We use LinkedIn for business business networking in the U.S. 
you go to a country like Pakistan, nobody uses LinkedIn. It's all Facebook. And they mix personal and business in the same account. That freaks me out. But that's how that country runs. <laughs> so you have to figure out each country's nuance. How do you get the product out? What kind of partnership will make sense? So you have to, again, be curious. You have to be listening to people, understand the landscape. Otherwise, you'll spend a lot of money and not have much to show for it. So I'm curious, you, uh, you know, normally for most U.S. companies, uh, Western Europe is ahead of a target uh, than the Eastern Europe. But for you, you said Eastern Europe is, uh, is your target market. So how come? Well, it's the dynamics of the business we are in. Eastern Europe is more dynamic. They're struggling. They're hungrier. So they're working harder. They have better soil. We are in agriculture, so they are more of a grain exporter. And Germany is. Germany is a great exporter of machinery. Ukraine is a great exporter of grain. So you have to understand for each market, it'll be different. But point I think, which is underneath this is, you have to look for people who are willing to work hard and hustle. Western Europe, by and large, is well-fed, well-satisfied, so the hunger level is not as high as you see in some other developing countries. So you're saying that... Um you know, one of the things, obviously, as an entrepreneur, you have to do is to know your markets and to know your customers, uh, which is something you teach in entrepreneurship classes as well. So people really get the hang of how they should go about doing that research. Um, so one of the things you mentioned is like the mindset of uh, growth doesn't exist outside. So do you recommend the entrepreneurs who are working outside the U.S. that they should actually come to Silicon Valley at some point in time? No, that's a, that is always a good idea, but it's not a practical idea for visa reason, for expense reason. So if they can afford to, even coming here for a month and just listening to people, meeting with people, immersing yourself into the local culture, going to event, will open their mind. And as Einstein said, a mind expanded seldom goes back to its original shape. Now, if it's not practical or possible, thank God for the internet, you have all kinds of resources at your fingertip, from TED Talks to uh, watching, listening to podcasts like this one, perhaps. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube. You can get a pretty good experience what people are saying, thinking, behaving like. All kinds of events are recorded, available on the internet for free. So you have to be driven to learn and wanting to learn. And that's what I see lacking often when I travel in other people, that desire to learn, desire to put in the extra effort is missing. So if you're willing to put in the extra effort, and we concluded that entrepreneurs are not just born, they can be made with education, with a proper education, and again, your own desire. And so thank you, Naeem. Yeah, good to have you. Thanks. Good to talk to you. 